Well, good evening. Welcome tonight. My name's Cliff Sanders. I'm Bill Search's assistant. <laughs> Bill's out of town and asked me if I would help out with this. And uh, when he and I talked, we were trying to discuss what we might teach. And uh, so many good lessons have been in here that we thought, why don't we uh, talk about or at least discuss uh, a practice sometimes that people fall into or people allege uh, that somebody's taken the scripture out of context. And uh, I've heard that. I've uh, taught uh, gra- uh, undergraduate students for 29 years um, at the collegiate level on how to study the Bible. And uh, when they sometimes will give a verse, we'll say, well, let's consider the context. And so wh- that's what we're going to do. I've got a couple of things tonight I'd like to share with you. Bill and I also, one of our concerns is not only to say, here's some verses that we think have been taken out of context, but also uh, to give a little bit of training, a little bit of of information about how to study the Bible, how someone can study the Bible more effectively and uh, more faithfully uh, in hopefully uh, to not read or see things in uh, out of context for their own life. I can tell you this. uh, I've been again, teaching for 29 years uh, at the collegiate level, and I've served in the church and served in ministry. And I've discovered in lots of places that there are lots of places and lots of churches that indicate that Bible study is important and necessary uh, for someone to grow spiritually and often say that that really has to happen. And then I ask the next question, and that's this. Where's your class that teaches people how? Generally, the answer is, well, we don't have it. And so one of the things we've tried to do here at Crossings over the years is to not only encourage people to study the Bible, teach them how. So we're going to work a little bit with that tonight as we begin. And I hope that this will add some value to your life and to be able to help you to kind of move it forward. I'll be sharing some things similarly a bit to what Bill said and doing that. I will say by the beginning, I, I always like to let the audience know what I think about them. You know, sometimes teachers and preachers will say, I wonder what people think about me, but I want you to know what I think about you. Um, Over the years, um, when I've taught before, I've tried to indicate to people that my understanding of an audience or people that are listening, uh, I take seriously the parable of the sower. And you may be familiar with that story Jesus told about a man that went out and threw some seed on the ground. And there were different results from that of how things grew or didn't grow. And uh, I've shared this uh, with people to say this. Um, That parable indicates uh, several things that I think are necessary uh, to understand. One is uh, that in that story, you'll notice uh, that the the sower did not make any difference. The person that's sowing the seed didn't make any difference. Um, The second thing that's even a little more troubling is that in that parable, the seed didn't make any difference. And Jesus said, the seed is the word of God. But what was it in that parable that made the difference? The ground. The ground. And so uh, when people, uh, maybe when I get through teaching or preaching, they may say stuff like, hey, I really enjoyed that. And I always say, well, if they'd lie about that, they'd lie about anything, you know. But I will say this to people because I mean it is if someone gets something out of the teaching I'm doing, I'll say this, thank you, but you're telling me more about you than you are about me. I'm the sower, I'm sowing the seed, 
But what made the difference? The ground. And so I, when I look at an audience or people that, I'm hopeful and thankful and believing that people's hearts are open and ready to receive and ready to accept what God has for them. So as we will, I'd like to start with prayer as we begin this time together. Father, thank you for the privilege we have to be together, to study, to consider how we might be more effective in our understanding of scripture. And I pray tonight that as we share these moments together that they'll be beneficial, not only for our upbuilding, but for the advancing of your kingdom. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus, amen. Now, our theme here obviously is uh, out of context. And the whole idea is that uh, people or experiences have where verses are uh, taken out of context. And I'd like for you to at least consider a thought here that a text out of context becomes a pretext. A text out of context becomes a pretext. Now, a pretext in our thinking here is this. A pretext, you may know of some of the way that language is used, is that um, this thing is working, I think. I've got enough technology up here to do heart surgery. <laughs> a pretext is an explanation offered to justify an action. Uh, you, you'll, you'll, someone will ha have a pretext or say, I want to be able to do this, so I'm going to make this statement or this idea. And so we want to be careful that we understand a text in its context so that it doesn't become a pretext. And so that explanation there helps us to understand that. The reason that happens, I think, is that a text out of context becomes a pretext is because we tend to isolate verses in the Bible. And when I've taught students, I've thought of it this way. Maybe this will help. The Bible is not an encyclopedia. It's not where you just go in and read an article and finish that article and come out. In an encyclopedia-like thing, you wouldn't read an article on farming Oklahoma and read an article before that, farming Ohio and farming Oregon. So what happens is we read these in some form of isolation and we need to figure out what is context? How do I establish it or what establishes context in terms of studying the Bible? It's one thing to say it's out of context. Often I will say to people, well, what context are you referring to? It's not enough to say, well, you just, you just said that out of context. Generally, it's been happening before when people say it's out of context, it's because sometimes they don't like what you've said, right? It's basically it, like, well, you know, you said it out of context. Well, okay, I'm willing to accept what you said, but I need you to be more, more specific as to what context that this is no longer in that you're alleging. We're gonna work on that tonight. One of the things, again, I think as far as context is being able to see it in its proper setting. Now, I wanna show you this here. Um, so what are some ways to account for context? What are, what are some ways that we account for it? Um, I don't know if y'all have ever noticed, but sometimes people bring maps to this place. <laughs> this has been uh, certified and approved by Terry Fakes. I asked him if we could do that. Now, this is just a, kind of a zoom in of one of the places that uh, my wife and I really enjoy. It's uh, the Garden of the Gods Nature Center. 
Uh, we just got back from there the other day. And if you saw this on a map, um, you might know it's in Colorado Springs somewhere, but because of the isolation of this picture or this map, you'd say, I'm not too sure how to get there. So what we would do is, or what we would consider is, we would zoom out and come back a little bit to say, where is it in context geographically? Where is it in terms of this context geographically? And so you'd have to zoom out. And so when we think about context in the Bible or discussing a passage in the Bible, it's one thing to be able to go right in there and specifically read the passage. But then it's another thing if we want to establish context to zoom out, if you will, and to be able to say, how does this fit or how does this work in the context of the entire section? And so that's what we're going to do. So asking the correct questions. How do we account for it? Asking the correct question. Um, I think, well, I know I got this. I, I want to state it this way. The right question is not, what does the passage say? That's not the right question. If we're going to establish context, if we're going to establish where this passage is, if we're going to establish what does this passage uh, have to say to us, that's not the right question. We, we can see that's what it says. But there are places, again, where uh, Jesus will say something or someone else will say something like Jesus said, if you don't hate your mother and father, you can't be my disciple. And when I was 16 years old, I used to quote that to my dad <laughs> to say, see, I'm just being biblical, dad, you know, just trying to be biblical. Now that's what it says. But in Hebrew, we know there's not a word for love less or to prefer. So when we read that, Jacob, I've loved, Esau, I've hated. If you don't hate your mother and father, you cannot be my disciple. If we understand what that says, we have to do a little more digging and understanding the language limitations of no word in Hebrew for love less. And so this, the real question to ask here is this. What does the passage mean? Not what does it say? What does it mean? And this is where the challenge is. This, this is where the real difficulty is in terms of coming to some awareness or understanding of what we're looking at here in context. So I want to, again, uh, you might even, in your notes, you might, even, you might even say it a little more clearly in this way, that really the, what we should be asking is, what did this mean to the original reader? What did this mean to the original reader? And we'll see why that's important here in a moment. But what does it not only say, but what does it mean? Now, uh, to kind of illustrate this point, I've got a little video I'd like for us to look at. Some of you may remember this uh, very well. Others uh, may not, but uh, we're going to show it here. And this illustrates this idea that we don't care. We're not just trying to find out what does it say, but what does it mean?
dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. For your perusal, a canimate. Height a little over nine feet. Weight in the neighborhood of 350 pounds. Origin unknown. Motives? Therein hangs the tale. For in just a moment, we're going to ask you to shake hands figuratively with a Christopher Columbus from another galaxy and another time. This is the Twilight Zone. What are your motives in coming here quite uninvited? Are we to assume that there is no ulterior motive beyond this vast humanity you speak of? Well, there is nothing ulterior in our motives. Nothing at all. You will discover this for yourselves before too long, simply by testing the various devices which we will make available to you. We can show you, for example, how to add a certain very cheap nitrate to the soil and end famine on Earth for good and all. We can demonstrate to you quite practically the principles of the force field in which you may cloak each nation with an invisible wall absolutely impenetrable by bombs, missiles, or anything else. We ask only that you trust us. Only that you simply trust us. That was what we all thought. It was the age of Santa Claus. Only these Kris Kringles came without white whiskers and rosy cheeks and twinkling eyes. They were nine feet tall enigmas who descended on us like locusts. But nobody was counting or worrying. It was most refreshing, Mr. Chambers, but I suggest that for the time being, you continue your process of deciphering until you can tell us precisely, and I mean precisely, what that book says. We've licked the title anyway. What does it say? How much does it tell us? Here it is. Well, that makes the cheese a little more binding, wouldn't you say, Colonel? Mm. I'd call that a reasonably altruistic phrase. Do you agree, Patty? Well, I, uh, well, I want to believe it, but I don't know what to think. To serve man, I hope so. I fervently hope so. This is flight number 914 from Earth to our planet. We will be taking off in three minutes. Mr. Chambers! Mr. Chambers! Don't get on that ship! The rest of the book, to serve men, it, it's a cookbook! Okay. <laughs> um... It's said to serve man, but it's a cookbook. <laughs> it's not enough just to, and by the way, that, that film clip, it always cracks me up a little bit. I mean, you notice that they do, the planet doesn't even have a name. It says the next flight to our planet, you know, not even a name. But that kind of illustrates this idea, again, that when we think that all we need to do, if you will, is to determine what it says, that there is then automatically a complete understanding of what that means. And so that's the question. What does the passage mean? And particularly, what did it mean to the original audience? So how do we do that? 
How do we then establish this? This is a suggested approach to understand a passage in context. Here are some suggestions I wanna give you that we think about as we try to not only, we're gonna deal with a passage here in a bit, but how do I go at establishing context? First of all, I wanna suggest to you that we have the literary or grammatical context. What is the literary or grammatical context? Uh, The Bible is a book and it conforms to and it responds to literary analysis. It has language, uh, words, it has concepts and ideas. And so if we're going to establish the context, then we should at least give attention to and respect the nature of the Bible as a book that is of literary uh, analysis. I'm gonna give you these real quick. So here they are. What would we do? Number one, we would consider the genre. The genre. Now, the genre is the kind of literature. What kind of literature are we dealing with here? Um, There is, at least in the Bible, three, really four major literary genres. One is narrative, which has to do with the story. Those would be the Gospels and the Old Testament mostly. Narrative, there's a story that's being told. There's a character. There's generally a character development. There's a conflict that gets resolved. And so narrative material is story. The other one is poetic genre. When we're dealing in the Psalms and some of the wisdom literature, we, we know enough that poetry is something that one author said is this, that poetry is language at high voltage. When David says, my bones are like water, we don't think he really means that, do we? We, we, don't, we don't think that he's thinking that his bones are his water or his tears are his food all the time. This is poetic language. And so it sets up an understanding. The third is epistolary material. The epistles are the letters. I always had fun with my students when I would say to them, you know what the epistles are, aren't, don't you? And I'd say the wives of the apostles. And yeah, they, they didn't get it either. <laughs> um, but epistles are the letters of the New Testament that are built on logical and critical analysis of an idea or a concept. And then finally, there's the apocalyptic genre, which is Revelation, Daniel, other places like that. It is highly Uh, influenced by imagery, by pictures, uh, by all kinds of uh, matters like that. So it's important, if we're going to set the context, for us to know, are we dealing with poetic material? Are we dealing with narrative material? Are we dealing with epistolary material? Are we dealing with apocalyptic material? And that becomes an important feature. Um, When I was a kid, I played baseball. And uh, when I uh, played baseball, I was a catcher. And uh, when I would, we were playing, one of the things that I did was I would give signals to the pitcher. Now, the reason I did that is because as a catcher, I needed to set up differently for a fastball that's high inside than I do a slider on the outside. And so there was a communication between me and the pitcher to be able for us to establish or to agree upon what's coming. And uh, I think that's kind of the same thing here with determining the genre. Now do I know the kind of material or kind of literature I'm dealing with? What is it that I need to anticipate 
is going to be happening here so that I don't take something that, if you will, is poetic, that is, if you will, language at high voltage and try to make it into some kind of general concept. So I think that's the first thing. The second one here on context is this, mood. That's not how you feel. <laughs> when you read the Bible, sometimes you don't, you're in a bad mood. Uh, mood has to do with the kind of statements that are made. I've been amazed at this as I've taught students over the years that a lot of people seem to believe that everything in the Bible is a command and it's not. The mood, we have three basic moods in language. One is the declarative mood where something's being declared or a statement that's being made. That's all it is. The second mood is imperative, which is a command. Do this, don't do that. And the third one is subjunctive, which is the mood of possibility. You'll usually see the word might in the text. But I, I've been amazed as people read the Bible that they don't account for this to understand that the mood here is declared. I'll give you an example. Um, in the book of Romans, in the book of Romans, the first 11 chapters are all declarative statements, no commands. Did you know that? 11 chapters are all declaring, making statements telling truth, no commands. You don't get to commands until you get to chapter 12, verse one. It says, I appeal to you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to the, hear, the, hear those commands? Present, don't be conformed. Pres, uh, 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 give your uh, body uh, in, in sacrifice. I, I'm just shocked when I've worked with students over the years that that attention is not given to that because you can't turn something into a command that's declarative. And so mood is incredibly important. In fact, I've taught the Bible, how to study the Bible here at Crossings over the last several years. And a friend of mine said the most important thing I ever taught him was to pay attention to mood. Pay attention to it. I, I'll tell you a story. When I was a, a years ago, um, had a class I was teaching on Ephesians. And um, I uh, told the students on a Friday, I said, on Monday, I want you to bring me on a piece of paper all the commands in Ephesians chapter one. Well, there are none, <laughs> right? Uh, in fact, in Ephesians, the first three chapters are all declarative. You don't get to imperative till chapter four. So on Monday, they come in and I would have been, I would have been thrilled. I would have been thrilled had they put their name on a piece of paper. That's back when we used paper. <laughs> it was years ago. Uh, when they sign their name and they say, none. You should have seen what those young people turned in. It was amazing. I mean, they worked hard at it. And I thought, they are never going to forget this. <laughs> and so I said, okay, who's first? And so a couple of students, I'll, I'll go first. And I said, okay, read it to me and then show me where the imperative is. Oh, well, Maybe not. I said, well, let's do it. So about 10 minutes we did this, and I finally said, time out. There are none. Now, I want you to remember this, that when you read the Bible, you need to pay attention to what mood is being used here. 
and not assume that everything in the Bible is a command. In fact, I would say it this way. Over two-thirds, I think, of the Bible, if we were to do a statistical study, is God declaring to you what he's done and who he is. And about a third is how we're to live. So mood. The third thing, tense. Tense. Is this, we're reading now, present, or is it something in the past or something in the future? Which is it? Tense is really important, and you'll discover sometimes in passages that there are several tenses at times. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 has all three tenses. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourself. It is the gift of God that no one should boast. You got all three tenses rolling right there. And so just paying attention to that. Then finally, and I'm hard, parts of speech. Parts of speech. Now I'm going to suggest here something that you you consider it's going to really be important tonight of what we're going to deal with in 1 Corinthians 11. It's going to be really important. I want to suggest to you that when you're trying to establish context, that you're trying to understand these matters as well as parts of speech. And I, I would just start by saying this. Think about, think about if you will, pronouns, prepositions, and conjunctions. Now, if you're like me, you might need a little refresher. <laughs> I remember years ago when I was taking Greek, uh, the professor said, let's all look at these prepositions. And I'm sitting there at my desk and I thought, what's a preposition? <laughs> I'm a junior in college. Okay. And I, this is no exaggeration. I'm serious. I'm sitting there at my desk and I'm thinking, Okay, I know what a noun is. I know what a verb, that's the subject of the sentence. I know what a verb is. That's the, that's the, that's the action. And I know what an adjective is. Literally, this is what's going through my brain. In the 1971 World Series, the Baltimore Orioles are playing the Pittsburgh Pirates. And Willie Starchill knocks the ball down third baseline. Kurt Gowdy says that Brooks Robinson scoops it up throws him out at first base, and, and Kirk Gaddy says this, Brooks Robinson is great, fantastic. What other adjective could you use to describe him? 33% of my grammatical knowledge came from the wide world of sports. <laughs> Kirk Gaddy taught me English. Now, because I know that, you know, language, working with language kind of disintegrates over time, but there are, if you will, resources on the internet, other places, uh, where you can get some help, Bill re referred to blueletterbible.org, and I highly recommend that. Blueletterbible.org, uh, where you can go in there, and we may demonstrate that next week on the computer so you can see how you can actually use it. But you can go in there, and it can help you with the part of speech, whether it's a conjunction or a pronoun or an adverb or an adjective. Those are really important things. I, I wish it was true. There's also online cliff notes. <laughs> I wish I would have thought that up. Cliff notes on grammar. There's another school called uh, Butte College, B-U-T-T-E College in California. I have encouraged my students to use it. They have a great uh, guide to English grammar that you can look at, look those uh, words up and, and what, how they function. It's incredibly important. Again, tonight we're going to look at that. Uh, now, the second part, if you will, of, of uh, establishing context is not only literary. Bill talked about this some, 
but historical context. What's the historical context of this passage? And I'm going to give you three really quick ideas here that can help you perhaps um, think about when you're reading the passage. Historical context, I think, is typically in these areas. That would be nice if they showed up. (laughs) What happened? Ah, technology. Uh, Let me give them to you. (laughs) I had them in there. I always thought that when the devil fell from heaven, he fell into technology. So uh, that's where I think he lives. Let me get, I can give them to you. Here they are. When you're considering historical matters, think of it this way. People, are there people in this text like Sadducees or are there Samaritans or are there Romans? That's some historical piece you may want to pay attention to. People, places, where'd this happen? Uh, What's the location? What's the situation there? And then finally, practices. Practices. Don't assume that fishing, like we would do on Lake Texoma, is the same way they fished in the Sea of Galilee, right? Don't assume that the way we do weddings in America is the same way they did weddings in Jesus' day practices, things that you see in the text that reflect a practice or a a way of going about life in that time. And so the, the, the idea of history, again, this helps me when I'm reading, I'm looking for people, I'm looking for places, and I'm looking for practices. Does that make sense? So I'm trying to give you some things here that will help you as you approach the scripture that you can kind of have at the ready that you, you don't have to have 14 books in front of you, but to be able to say that. Now, I, I want to recommend a book that you might consider. Bill recommended some actual like atlases and maps. I want to give you some specifics. Here's a book I think that would help you because history is often one of the hardest things to get up to speed on. And it's this, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah by Alfred Edersheim, E-D-E-R-S-H-E-I-M, Alfred Edersheim. It's a massive work. It's his life's work. It's about 900 pages, and you can get it for about $20. It's just staggering, the work that he's done. What Edersheim has done is taken the Gospels and worked through them chronologically and given you all the historical data and all the background and all the understanding of what was going on in Jesus' day. It is a masterpiece of work. And I always recommend if people are trying to get up to speed on history, do that first. Go to Edersheim's book, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. Another um, book I've recommended around is uh, Manners and Customs by by J.I. Packer and Merrill Tenney, T-E-N-N-E-Y. This this, uh, book on on customs and manners, that will help you uh, get involved in that. So again, context, my judgment, context being set has either to do with literary material or historical material, one of the two. I've got to establish it that this text has a literary context here and as well as a historical context. Once I establish those, 
I think I have pretty good reason to believe that I'm able to move forward. So, um, now let's talk about our passage under consideration here. I want you, if you will, turn in your Bibles, if you have them there, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I always tell people, if you have a physical Bible, go to your table of contents. That's in the front. You paid for all the pages. Use them, okay? Uh, Go to the table of contents. People sometimes get confused where books are, you know? Uh, Habakkuk, or I told them about the book of Clephiticus. That's an interesting one that has been written, so that'll get to the back here in a minute. Uh, But 1 Corinthians uh, 1085 in my Bible. I want to look at a passage that... um, and I don't want to sound uh, arrogant here, but I'm five years old, and uh, I've not heard anybody comment on something in this passage on the Lord's Supper that I think, <clears throat> uh, grammatically, is the hinge on how you understand it. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, is what we're going to be looking at. And we'll, uh, let me give a little bit of context here. Uh, if you will, uh, in this uh, particular section. Uh, The book of 1 Corinthians, if we look at the big picture, is um, really a a book, a letter to the church at Corinth um, that really addresses problems. Um, It doesn't have a lot of teaching. It has some, but it's mostly correction. Uh, For instance, uh, in chapters 1 to 4, uh, it's the division of leaders. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. You know, th- that problem. In chapters five and six, there's some immorality in the church that Paul is addressing. In chapter seven, he's answering questions about marriage. In fact, in chapter seven, now about the things that you wrote to me. We're not exactly sure what the questions are because we don't have the questions, but we have the answers. It starts in chapter seven. In chapter 8, it's a matter of dealing with how do we deal with food offered to idols? What's the issue here in Corinth? Uh, Great amount of of, uh, food, um, idolatry, uh, how that interacts in worship. Uh, Chapter 9 is Paul defends his uh, apostleship. Chapters 11 to 14, which we're going to be, chapters 11 to 14 are corrections on how to conduct church. Uh, The largest section there really is, how does one conduct church? Whether it's how it's participating, who's participating, men and women, uh, some of the the matters about some of the cultural matters there. But how does one go about that? And then how does one go about the Lord's Supper and then spiritual gifts and all of those matters? That's all 11, 12, 13, and 14. And it's a fascinating thing. And so I want to I look at this uh, section in this section of chapter 11 about the Lord's Supper or communion or the Eucharist. It, it goes by different names as to how Paul is correcting and how Paul is, is helping the church to understand, one, they're really having some problems here, and two, how to correct that. And so that, that sort of becomes the the, the, the matter here. Now, if you'll look here uh, in chapter 11, and I'm giving you sort of the context of this, in chapter 11, uh, uh, verse 17. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, 
Because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. So Paul's saying, when you come together, you're eating, but it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. So what's going on here? The specific problem Paul is trying to correct here is this error in how they're taking or how they are operating, if you will, uh, in the Lord's Supper. Now, um, I want to work at this historically, first of all, okay? So I told you context is history or grammar. So first of all, historical. Let's look here at some historical matter. People, places, practices. So what we have here, I think, in this particular matter is an understanding, if you will, of the Lord's Supper. What is going on here? Now, it kind of makes me think of this. When I married my wife uh, several years ago, she comes from a big farming family, and um, her dad farmed 8,000 acres of wheat. I'd never seen so much land in all my life. And I remember driving around, and in her family, they would say, uh, do you want to go drive around and look at the crops? And I grew up in Houston and go, not really, you know, not really. Yeah, not, I'm not, not that interested. <clears throat> or do you want to go look at the animals? I said, I'm a little scared of big animals, you know, it's kind of stay away. What was fascinating to me is with the, about 11 o'clock in the day, they'd say, we're going to go have dinner. And I thought, man, these people eat earlier than people in Florida. <laughs> And where I grew up, dinner was at night. But in Kansas, dinner is lunch. And then they had this thing at the night called supper. I was so confused. I thought, what is this going on around here? So when I see the thing supper, the Lord's Supper, when I see the word, I think, oh, that's a big meal. Now, historically, we know this from history, from a background, that the word supper was a common term used by Greek writers that was a large meal. They were used used as meals of communion between people and their gods. These were very formal, standardized meals. The word supper shows up in the Greek papyra. That's a a material that's written on that's from, from a plants. And so the word supper was used historically for these large, important dinners, suppers, <laughs> so I got suppers um, between people, the, the adherents, and their gods. And so it has a long history of this matter. And so it's this understanding that this term was used before this ever happened for these large, uh, extravagant social meetings of food together. And it was the idea of having communion with each other and the gods. So when we come to this matter in the the New Testament time, we realize that this kind of gathering is not what we do. Where there's a little piece of bread and a little thing here that you peel off that you almost lose your religion trying to do that. Remember, we had to do those. It's tough. And 
That wafer that uh, Terry Fakes always says is the driest bread in the world, and it's true, it's true. Uh, that is nothing like what it was in this situation. This was a meal. I mean a real meal. And Paul gives us some information on that when he says this, verse 20, therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's supper for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first and one is hungry and another's drunk. Well, from what we can gather here, this large meal that's going on, there are people who are eating it all up and drinking it all up, and there's not anything left for others. Notice what Paul says in verse 22. What? Don't you have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? And what we know about this historically is the church was so comprised, there were people of means, but there were many people who were poor. And so this meal was something that was done not only as an act of worship, but also as an act of mercy to others. And Paul is, 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 is really saying to them, what you're doing here, I will not praise you. He says there in verse 22, I will not praise you for this. Okay? So this seems to be the history. This is a real meal, a large meal, and some are eating it all up and getting drunk and not leaving anything for others. Does that make sense? You see that there? That this notion. Now, I want to move a little further in verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night which he was betrayed, took bread and he gave thanks. He broke said, this is my body. Now, we're going to look at some grammatical matters. We've looked at some historical matters. Now, I want to look at some grammatical matters here. This word body shows up several times here. Where Jesus, he's giving the words of institution where he says, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, and after this cup is the new covenant in my blood, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, note, watch this. He says, in terms of the bread, do it in remembrance of me. In terms of the cup, do it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, now this is the payoff, the historical piece, and now some grammatical matters, if you will, about the word body, soma. We'll look at that in a moment. This is the payoff. Therefore, as often, uh, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily, uh, and worthily does so, drinks is guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Now, when I read this years ago, I said, um, there's a lot of things going on right here, but there's a word here I think I need to know. Which one do you think that is? Huh? Yeah. Unworthily. Yeah, because it seems to be that whoever does this, notice what he says, it shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord, but let a man examine himself. Okay. So examine yourself. For so doing, eat the bread and drink the cup. For he who eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body 
rightly. Remember I told you that the word body up here earlier had been referenced to Jesus saying, this bread is my body, okay? Now he's come down and he's not saying anything about judging the body and the blood. That's what he'd said earlier, right? He just refers to the body. I want to ask you a question here. Just think about this grammatically. Same word, used in a different way. Is this term here, when he says you've not judged the body rightly, is it the body of Christ or the body of Christ? With me here? Paul has declared that the church is what? The body of Christ. He said earlier that these elements reflect or represent the body of Christ. So which is it? What is it they've not discerned correctly? The communion elements? Or is the problem, this division, this failure, if you will, to care for the others at the meal? It's an important question. Now, let me back up because here's another grammatical piece. The word unworthily. The word unworthily. Uh, some translations do a great job because they say in an unworthy manner. This word, unworthily, is an adverb. Adverbs modify nouns. That's their function. What Paul is saying here is unworthily, this matter of unworthily, is not who's taken it, it's how they're taking it. I'll show you here in a second. This has nothing to do with who. This has everything to do with how. He's saying you're taking it in an unworthy manner. What's that unworthy manner? Eating it all up not leaving anything for anyone else. You can't make this about you. Whether you said a bad word or had a bad thought and now you better not take communion because you weren't good at work today. The only way that could ever be is if this were an adjective because adjectives modify nouns. Adverbs modify verbs. I'll go so far as to say this. Paul is saying the unworthily way of taking the Lord's Supper is by refusing to recognize the body of Christ and eating it all up and leaving nothing for anyone else. I'll go so far as to say it this. You can't do this. Unless when they take the communion elements by you this week, next time you do this, okay, I'll eat it all up. You can't do it. But you know what? We're so accustomed to feeling shame 
and so accustomed. We've turned this adverb into an adjective. So it says you should examine yourself about what? About how you're taking it. Does that make sense? You can't make an adverb be about you in terms of your character or who you are or if you're good enough or if you've been holy enough or you've said a bad word or thought a bad thought. This is about how people are taking it. Let me show you the kicker on this. Look down here. Uh, Paul goes on. Let a man examine himself as he eats the bread for he who drinks and eats judgment to himself if he doesn't judge the body rightly. The body here, I'm convinced, is the body of Christ, the church. Paul is not concerned about some physical piece of bread. He's concerned about the body of Christ that is operating in such a way that they reject or they don't care about the other members of the church. I think I can show that here in a second. He said, for this reason, many of you are weak and sick and the number of fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we're disciplined by the Lord so that we'll not be condemned. Now look at verse 33, grammatically. So then, the Greek term here is hoste, and it means this. Here's the conclusion. So what's Paul's answer to this problem? If the problem is that people are eating all the elements up and leaving nothing for anyone else. And by that, by virtue of that, they're taking it unworthily. They're not discerning the body. So what's the payoff, Paul? Watch what he says. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, pray and review your life and wonder if you've been bad or good. Is that what he says? No. I mean, generally, when I was taking communion as a kid, We'd get ready to take it. They'd turn the lights down. They'd play some creepy music. <laughs> Make us all feel bad. The payoff here, Paul is not saying, so then, here's what you need to do now. You better be serious about this. You better tighten up. And you better, you better review your life carefully. What does he tell them to do? He says, so then, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. <laughs> If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for what? Judgment. What did he say happens to those who eat unworthily the Lord, uh, the, the body, uh, the, the, the community? What does he say happens if they what, come under what? Judgment. See there, verse 24, he who eats and drinks judgment to himself if he doesn't discern the body. He says, how do you keep from getting under judgment? Eat at home. I've never heard anybody, and maybe, maybe I've just been in the wrong circles, work through this to say, you can't do this. It's not the way we take communion. It's not the way we do it. And I'll, I'll give you another observation of mine at least. I'll tell you the other thing that caused me to be thinking about this more and more. Jesus said we're to do this in remembrance of him. 
And I can tell you every communion service I went to before I understood this, the only thing I remembered was me. How bad I had been. How unworthy I was. And how un, 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 unprepared I was to take the Lord's Supper. I never did this in remembrance of Jesus. I always did it in remembrance of Cliff. Anybody with, not Cliff, anybody with me? <laughs> you didn't do it in remembrance. You, you thought about you the whole time. And it made it weird, and it wasn't a celebration, and it wasn't joyful. John Wesley said in the revival that he led in England that every time they announced that they would be having the Lord's Supper, over half the people wouldn't show up. Why? Because they didn't understand this is an adverb. It's the way they were taking it not who. This has liberated me to be able to say when I take the Lord's Supper now, my whole attention now is on Jesus. My whole awareness is I want to take it in a way to honor him and glorify him. Again, though, I can't do what this is saying because that's not the way we take it. For some of us, it's been so ingrained that even when we read this when it says, let a man or person or a person examine themselves. How? In how you're taking it. Are you eating it all up? Are you drinking it all up? So I want to leave this at least as a possibility here. The history being that this is a real meal, a constant meal, that the problem historically is that Paul is suggesting that people are eating all, this, all these parts up or all this food up and leaving almost nothing for anyone else to eat. And second of all, the grammatical piece is that this is an adverb and cannot describe the condition or the, lo or the characteristics of a noun or a person. It can only describe action. Adverbs only modify verbs. So it can only modify action. And then finally, grammatically, I would say in this particle here on verse 33, it's a particle uh, term, when it says, so then, brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. You would think if people are just being bad, Paul would have something else to say about, you know, you need to straighten up and be better and be more holy. All he says is wait and eat before you come there. So here's the application. Next time you take the Lord's Supper, I want to ask you to consider doing this. I want you to, first of all, say to yourself, the issue now is that I do this in remembrance of Jesus because I can't do what Paul's talking about. That's a bold statement, but I live by it. You can't do this. I'm going to take those elements and I'm going to remember him. Not me, him. And I'd ask you to do this. I asked uh, some friends of mine one time Sunday school class, take those elements. When you get them, just hold them up. And say, Jesus, I do this in remembrance of you. This is about you, not about me. And to celebrate and rejoice in this, what the church has always understood as the means of grace that comes through communion. Let's pray.
Father, we want to live in the freedom that comes from what you've done for us. I pray that you'll take these thoughts and these words and they'll find place in our hearts and lives and that you'll free us to be people who can celebrate and rejoice in what you have done for us. We pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen. We'll come back next week and do another verse.